Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be primarily in John chapter 10. That'll be the focus of where we are this morning, John chapter 10, verses 30 through 38. Uh, But before we go there, I will read from Isaiah 9-6, the verse which is giving us our series that we're going through for the season of Advent this year. Isaiah 9-6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then John chapter 10, starting in verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but, because, uh, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father." Sometimes language just isn't quite able to convey the true meaning that we want it to. Our words can only speak so clearly when we're trying to give life to an idea. And sometimes that leads us into some odd phrases, uh, like jumbo shrimp. We know that they're not really jumbo when we compare it to anything else, right? But at the same time, for a shrimp, they're pretty big. One might even call them jumbo. So we end up saying jumbo shrimp, which doesn't actually make sense. But at the same time, we all know exactly what we mean. We know what we're talking about. Here's another one since I'm on the the food theme. Plant-based meat. (laughs) Well, that's not what it is. I'm not totally sure what it is, but meat, I know it is not. Unless PETA and the meat industry have been lying this whole time, I'm pretty sure you need an animal to get meat, not a plant. But at the same time, as someone who eats plant-based meat with some kind of frequency, it might not actually be meat, but I know it's not a salad. <laughs> like, it's, it's not just plants. It's not straight-up plants out of the ground. But it's not quite meat either. So we end up having to call it something, and we land it on plant-based meat. You today might have that same little trigger in the back of your head when you hear me say this. Jesus is the everlasting Father. Now, maybe you don't have that same reaction that you have to plant-based meat, to jumbo shrimp. But I think you probably should. Of all the names that Jesus has called from Isaiah 9-6, everlasting Father, to me, would have to easily be the most confusing Because you can easily read that phrase too simply and end up wildly off from its meaning. So today I want you to bear with me because we're going to get a little more theological, a little deeper than we usually do. And I'm doing that because I want you to be able to hear that title correctly. What does it mean for Jesus to be the everlasting father? 
It's my hope that today you will leave and be able to say in full confidence, and meaning the right things when you say it, not the wrong things, that Jesus is the everlasting Father. So today we'll see four truths we should hear, four truths we should mean when we say that Jesus is the everlasting Father in today's text. The first truth that we should hear when we say Jesus is the everlasting Father is that he and the Father are one. Verse 30 tells us this as clearly as it possibly can. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. But as I said before, we can easily get the statement wrong just by reading it a little too simply. What we should hear in these words is that Christ and the Father are one, not that Jesus is the Father. To say that Jesus is the Father, if you mean that in its, in its simplest sense, that would make you a heretic. It would make you a, a modalist or a sibelian. There are people who think this way today. They still exist. The most common forms we would find it today are from Unitarians or Oneness Pentecostals. They believe that there is one God who acts like three persons, not one God who is three persons. The persons for them are like hats that God takes off and puts on. Now he's the Son. Now he's the Father. Now he's the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, he did most of his work as the Father. Then for that 33 years in Christ, he was working like he was the Son. And then since Pentecost, he was working like he was the Spirit. But those people are wrong. The church formally, throughout history, has declared them to be heretics. The three persons who are God are and always have been all three persons the entire time. And there have always been three persons who are the one God. There was not the Father who then created the Son and Spirit. And the three persons are distinct, not in essence or substance, but in person, in relation. The Father is not the Son or Spirit. Neither is the Son, the Father, or the Spirit, just as the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. As Christians, we believe in three persons who are the one God. And Jesus, if you pay attention to this verse, is even helping us get there. Notice the grammar of what he says, I and the Father are one. So he lists two persons, the Son and the Father. He uses a plural verb, are, not is. I and the Father is one. That's not what he says. I and the Father are one. So we know we're talking about two somethings here. And theologically, we've come to call that something person. These somethings persons. And I say some things because uh, as technical as we might want to be, that's kind of how we got to this language of person. Some things. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the church who helped us get to this technical and mostly precise language, says what I'm talking about this way. When the question is asked, three what? Human language labors altogether under great poverty of speech. The answer, however, is given three persons. Not that it might be completely spoken, but that it might not be left wholly unspoken. He's basically saying, when we answer the question, three what, and say three persons, that we're doing that so that we're saying something, because saying something is better than saying nothing. We don't know the fullness of what it means, the person language. To some extent, it's just beyond us. Person doesn't fully explain what we're talking about, but it's better than shrugging our shoulders. 
And if you were in a seminary class and not a, not a worship service, if this was a lecture and not a sermon, I would spend more time trying to explain that idea, talking about subsisting relations and the, the, what it means for the Father to be the Father, the Son to be the Son, the Spirit to be the Spirit. But today, just know that when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he means both the plural are and the singular one. We, these two persons... And actually included within that, the third person also, are one. But the focus, the emphasis here in Christ's words, aren't on getting us to a full-fledged doctrine of the Trinity. He's not giving some sort of theological uh, explanation, some sort of theological lecture. The point here is that Christ and the Father are one. So while we do have three persons, these three persons are one God. He is one substance, one essence, one power, one will. We don't worship three gods who always agree, three gods who are on the same team. We worship one God. The modalists, the Sibelians, those heretics that I talked about, as with most heresies, they're actually starting from a place that we would agree with, a place that Scripture teaches. There is one God. But then they're taking that one God idea, that truth, and overemphasizing it twisting it beyond what Scripture would allow to end up contradicting Scripture by saying that though there is one God, there are not three persons. That's not what we hold as Christians. One God, three persons. So we have to learn to be wise. We have to learn to read Scripture, how to study it correctly, because it is the final authority, not our theological systems. But we do at the same time also have to learn to accept some authority from the creeds, some authority from our statements of faith, some authority from our theological systems that we've inherited, because it's really easy for us as individuals to end up in error on accident just because we heard Jesus say, I and the Father are one, and we took that idea and we turned it up to 11. It's easy to end up in error that way. But Jesus is saying this today, I and the Father are one, to the Jews in this text, to emphasize that he and the Father are the same. They're the same power, the same substance, the same will, the same mind, the same attributes. He's telling us that just as the Father is God, so he, the Son, is God. Because he and the Father are one. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our statement of faith as a church, puts the idea this way. It says, God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature essence or being again i think augustine's helpful here he says for we are one means what he is that i am also jesus is saying it in this verse in this context he's trying to make it clear to them when you're looking at me you are looking at the same thing you would be looking at if you were looking at the father we are one we are of the same substance He's telling them that he and the father are one. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be the everlasting father so that we know when we see Jesus, when we see God, the son, we know we're seeing the one true God. We know we're getting the real thing in the flesh. We know that God sent himself to save his people for himself. And I know this is more theological than we're used to being on a Sunday morning. But I find this truth so comforting at Christmas time because from this truth, we get the idea that God didn't farm out your salvation. God didn't send some lackey to save his people. 
He didn't even just send his top general. He didn't just send the next best thing. He didn't send God part two. God the B team. No, the baby given to us in the manger is the God of the universe, boldly and powerfully, though humbly, stepping into his own creation just so he might save someone like you. And he's able to do this because Christ and the Father are one. So when we say that Jesus is the everlasting Father, we should hear within that that Jesus and the Father are one. But we should also hear that Jesus is God and man. That's the second truth we should hear, that Jesus is God and man. We know he's a man from Scripture, but that truth is emphasized in this text specifically. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Their whole problem with Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, is that he is a man. He's standing right in front of them like a man, as a man, in his humanity. None of them are confused that he's a man. It's evident to them. If it looks like a man, walks around like a man, if it talks like a man, then it's probably a man. Scripture gives us these simple clues all throughout the Gospels. He ate, he slept, he grew tired, he was weary, he was angry, he was sad. He died, he bled. But if, the, if he is the everlasting Father, and he and the Father are one, then while he is a man, he can't only be a man. He has to also be God. He's not merely man, he is also God. That's what he's telling them in the text. And it's the reason for their complaint in verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. If he and the Father are one substance, one will, one power, then Jesus must also be God, just as the Father is God. And that breaks all of their brains, because how can someone possibly be both God and man? The incredulity that comes with that question is why we celebrate this whole season of Advent. The entire season of Christmas is built around the wonder and joy which has come into the world through this fact that we can't ever really wrap our minds around. Jesus, the Son of God, was born to the Virgin Mary as a baby. He's the God-man. When people are trying to give the, the fullness of this idea, you'll hear them say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Or maybe even a little bit more accurately, he is truly God and truly man. He is as God as God can possibly be and also as human as he can possibly be. Perfect in deity and perfect in humanity. Like us in all things except for sin. And that is why Jesus being the everlasting father, and by that, us meaning that he is God and man, is so important for you. When the church was trying to figure out how to explain how Jesus could actually be truly God and truly man, they ended up referring to this phrase all the time. This was like the the one line they kept coming back to to try to make sure that they were on the right track. They said, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. That which Jesus does not become, he does not save. 
So by that they mean, if he's not a man like you, then why would you have any confidence that a man like you could be saved? And on the flip side of that, if he's just a man, if he's not God, then why would any man be saved? Why would any man be any different than he already was? Jesus is called the everlasting father so that as man and as God, he might save us. Which when we realize that, it really draws out the the craziness of the statement of the Jews in this verse. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. That was their problem. That they thought Jesus was a man who was trying to make himself appear or call himself as if he were God. Well, that's not what happened at all. Jesus is God. He absolutely was God. He had always been God. And he assumed humanity to himself. Jesus saying he and the father are one isn't scandalous because this man is making himself God. It's shocking because this God is making himself man. It's surprising because the word of the father is now in flesh appearing. It's scandalous because veiled in flesh, we now the Godhead see. The full incarnate deity. John 1.14 says it like this. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus the God. Became flesh. And dwelt among us. So he is both God and man. And that truth should be reinforced every time we hear the phrase that Jesus is the everlasting father. But perhaps most obviously from this phrase, Jesus is the everlasting father, we should also hear that Jesus is from everlasting. That's the third truth we should think when we say Jesus is the everlasting father, that he is from everlasting. So it's not blasphemy for him to say that he is God. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. He is the son of God. So it's not blasphemy for him to say that he is. In fact, it would be blasphemy for him to say anything else. To say that he's not God, that would be blasphemy. But this is exactly what he's supposed to say because he is and always has been the son of God. That's who he's been forever. From everlasting to everlasting. From forever to forever. From infinity to infinity and beyond. Before he created time. Before the word before even makes any sense at all. Jesus is the son of God. And you may not be someone who's ever put much thought into this. You may be someone who's thought about it and ended up thinking about it incorrectly because we're humans. And some of this, when it gets down to it, is simply beyond our comprehension. But how can a son eternally be a son? How can he have always been the son? The answer to that question has led to a lot of people into another heresy called Arianism. And Arians believe that though Jesus was God, 
that he was functionally a B-team God. The Father actually ran the show. Jesus did what he was told from eternity. They even went so far as to say that there was a time when the Son did not exist. That Jesus was the first and greatest being that God created, but that he was a being that God created. And these ideas are still out there. They haven't gone away. We encounter them today in the theology of Jehovah's Witnesses, of Mormons, of Islam. They deny the full divinity, the full deity of Jesus, because they say that God made him. And even if God made him the first and greatest of all things, if God made him, then he's a creature. He's not God. But that question, how can a son eternally be a son? For a lot of us, I think our answer to that question unknowingly would get us in roughly the same place as a Jehovah's Witness, as a Mormon, as a Muslim. I think a lot of us, without thinking, would say that in God there's the Father, and then he has the Son. Because we look around, and that's how it works with us, right? There are fathers who then, at some point, give birth to sons. There's a father who precedes the son in time and power and authority. So then we read that concept about us back into God and assume, well, if we're like that, he's probably like that too. But hang with me through this. If God the Father is eternal, if he has always been, then God the Son must also be eternal. Because without the Son, the Father wouldn't be the Father. The defining trait of a Son is that he is the Son of a Father. And just so, the defining trait of a Father is that he has a Son. So you don't get one as God without the other as God. Jesus not only was, but is, always has been. And always will be the son of God. He is this from everlasting. But he was sent into creation as the God man. Because he is the son. Verse 36. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated. And sent into the world. You are blaspheming. Because I said I am the son of God. So while there aren't levels of godness. With the father having the real power and authority. And the son and spirit just going along for the ride. It's still fitting, it's still right, that the Son was incarnate. That the Son was consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. Because He is the Son. And as the Son, He is eternally from the Father. Begotten of the Father. Sent out from the Father's own essence. So that we know they share the same substance. So it's fitting, it makes sense, that when it came time to enter creation. To redeem God's people to Himself. That the Son is the one who is incarnate. That the Son is the one who's consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. And it matters for us that Jesus is called the everlasting Father. Because by this we know, just as God entered the world to save sinful people like us 2,000 years ago, He is still saving sinful people like us 2,000 years later. If we weren't redeemed by the everlasting one, if we weren't redeemed by the one who has been who he is for all eternity, then we would have no confidence that God hasn't changed his mind in the last 2,000 years. We'd have no reason to believe that just because Jesus came and said he was going to save then, that he is still going to save now. But we can have that confidence because he's the everlasting one. Because he is who he has always been 
even now, and always will be. My wife sometimes gets frustrated with me. Well, frustrated might be a little bit too strong. Uh, Mildly perturbed with me uh, occasionally. Just on, like, the rarest of occasions will she possibly get a little bit annoyed whenever I do something. And one of those things that I do that gets her to this place is me constantly confirming, constantly checking in on things. Here's, here's a for instance. Yesterday, we were going to Little Rock. We were going to meet some friends. And for weeks, I had been asking her what day this was going to happen. Then what time it was going to happen. Then what time we were going to leave. Then if we were going to make any stops. Then I would ask all those same questions again in the same order, all the way through, trying to confirm, okay, it is on this day. It is on this time. We're leaving at this time. We're, we're going to this place. And I did that to the point where she could possibly get a little bit mildly annoyed because she has told me all of these same things before. She answered the question every time I asked. And on about the millionth time I asked, she said, I have told you this. I've done it. You should just believe me. But do you know why I asked those same questions over and over? Because every time I asked, something had changed. Every time. From the first time I heard about the event to yesterday when it actually happened, something changed every single time. It was supposed to be on Friday, not on Saturday. It was supposed to be at 6, then it was at 3, then it was at 5. You were going to leave at 4, then at 3, then at 3.30, then at 3. We were supposed to meet at the restaurant, then at their house, where we were going to get to-go food. Then we were going to go back to the restaurant, and then we went to their house, and then we ended up going to the restaurant. We were supposed to go straight there. And somehow, in us going straight there, there was a 45-minute detour for us to go shopping. Every single detail about every single thing we did changed. So in this rapidly evolving situation in which I found myself, I continued to confirm and ask and clarify because I couldn't totally trust that what was true at one time would still be true whenever I asked. But if Jesus is rightly called the everlasting father, then I don't have to keep checking with him to see if anything's changed. To see if he's still in the business of loving and caring for the dirtiest of sinners just like me. The same love which sent Christ into the world is the same love that I experience now, which keeps me in him, even when I'm the one who wavers, even when I'm the one who's faltering. Because he is from everlasting, he is who he has always been and who he was, who I get to read about him being is who he still is today. The same love he had for his people then is the same love he has for his people now. He will not be incarnate again, but he would be just as incarnate now if he had to be. Such is his love that never changes for his people. But finally, let us also hear when we call him everlasting father, that he shows us the father because he is doing the father's works. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. Just as he is begotten of the Father, so we know he has the same power, the same will, the same essence as the Father. So he does his works so that we know what are the works of the Father. He's telling the Jews here and us now that when we see him working, we see the Father working. 
Because our one God in three persons works from the same power, from the same will, from the same essence. When we see the Son working, we are seeing the work of the Father because the persons work not together as if they were three people, but as one because they are one. He is doing the works of his Father to show us the Father. And he's doing them ultimately that we might believe the works That we might receive them. Verse 38. But if I do them. Even though you do not believe me. Believe the works. That you may know and understand. That the father is in me. And I am in the father. He came. He was born in the flesh. In the manger in Bethlehem. He lived a truly human life. Which was even more human. Because he was perfect. Because he was without sin. Though he was innocent. He died on the cross in the place of sinners that they might be saved from their sin and freed from its effects. And he came back to life as a man so that men could come back to that same life. He ascended to heaven where he now rules and reigns over everything. And he did all those works. He did all that he did that we might believe his work. That we might receive his works, that same gospel to ourselves. That ultimately is why he came. He is showing us the Father in his gospel. He's showing us God's love for his people through his work. So that through repentance and faith, we can be saved by the work that he has done. He's pleading with the Jews in this text to understand what he's done. And through that understanding, to believe who he is, that they might call him the everlasting Father and worship him as such. And that's the end goal that he has here. Still verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's showing them his works. He's telling them these things so they might know and understand the God of the universe. That they might know that he and the Father are one. That they might know that he is God and man. That they might know he is from everlasting. That they might see the father whom no one has seen when they see him. And this isn't just head knowledge for Jesus that he wants them to understand. This isn't just a theological treatise that he's trying to get them to to assent to. John 20 verses 30 and 31 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. He's coming and doing the work. We are reading and hearing the work so that we will believe just as he's encouraging the Jews to believe in these verses. That the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. Not so that we can check some box saying that we believe that. Not so that we can get our theology exactly right, so we can make sure that we're doing everything exactly perfectly. So that we can say he is the everlasting Father and mean exactly the perfect things. No, but so that we might, by believing, have life in his name. That's ultimately why God sent him to us. That's why... He gave us the wonderful counselor. That's why he gave us the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. 
so that we might believe in the child who was born and the son who was given, and so that we might have life in his name. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your words with your people. But thank you more than all of that for sending us this son who was born, this child who was given, on whose shoulders the government rests. Thank you for sending us yourself. Thank you for the God who stepped into his creation, that he might save his people, that we might believe his works and have life through that belief. Thank you for the gift of faith the possibility of repentance. Help us to respond to this truth, to this gospel, to these facts, with the full assurance and faith that we should. Help us to know the unity of God, to know the the union of Jesus in two natures, to know the works of Jesus, to reveal God to us, And to know that we can trust everything you say and everything you do. Because you are who you have always been. Let us know that and trust that today and every day. With even greater confidence than we do right now. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.